0: That was great. Appreciate that a lot. I will be um, reading from Matthew chapter 5. If you find that, you can stand. Verses, um, beginning in verse 11. Matthew 5, verse 11. <clears throat> Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God, again, thank you so much for this word that you've given us, this revelation of yourself. Thank you, God, for your teaching ministry by your Holy Spirit to always lead us into the truth and that you will never mislead us. I pray, God, that we would just by faith embrace what you are saying here and what you particularly are saying about us and that we would receive this, walk in it, God, for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. may be seated. Last week, we started here in the Sermon on the Mount, and I looked at the Beatitudes. Um, during the week, I've been up in Colorado, um, Fraser, um, Colorado, outside Winter Park, teaching at one of our sister torchbearer schools there, and um, had a great time. There's no place like home. Just wonderful being able to come back and shoot guns with the students on Friday, and you know, skeet, and blow up pumpkins, and eat barbecue, and we are the best torchbearer school. No other school and torchbearers anywhere in the world gets to do these things. Wonderful. Um, um, Last week, as I started the Beatitudes, and and we went through verse 12, but as I just read, picking up in verse 11, I did that because verses 11 and 12 serve as a connection point, a transition into what is following about being salt and light of the earth. And I just would establish again, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, that what Jesus is wanting to do is to show us how radically different his kingdom is than the kingdom of this world. And I would say even radically different, his kingdom, than the kingdom of Israel. Because you have to keep in mind he's speaking to the Jews here. And what he is offering them, what he is presenting to them, is not um, a a remade Israel or a better version of Israel or, or a repentant Israel. He is offering them a new kingdom entirely different than what they've seen in the past. And I'll just give you an example of that. You recall that the first beatitude is poor in spirit. When you remember the story of the rich young ruler, um, it's, his story is in both Matthew and Luke. I'm most familiar with Luke, so I'm just going to turn there. Luke 18, this young man comes to Jesus. We know that he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what shall I do to obtain eternal life? So despite being rich and young and a ruler, he says, I'm missing something. And he knew, which is very astute of himself, he knew he was not saved. He did not have eternal life and that Jesus could address that. So this is pretty amazing. And so then to just summarize the story quickly, Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And he goes, done it. And then Jesus says, okay, go sell everything you have and then come follow me. And the man walks away grieved because he owned much and was not willing to sell his possessions. And then Jesus says, how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that just shocked the the disciples that were still hanging around. And they go, well, if he can't be saved, because their response is, then who can be saved? And then Jesus says this, that... He says it's easier for for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to be saved. And he meant it's impossible for a rich man to be saved because he follows up and says what is impossible with men is possible with God. Now, what's the point of all that? How does that relate to the Beatitudes? In Deuteronomy 28, there is the promise of what the rich young ruler fulfilled. Deuteronomy 28, God spoke through Moses and said that if you are diligent to obey the Lord your God and are careful to do all of his commandments, which I command you, which is the rich young ruler, I've done these things, he said. And if you do these things... Then God says, all these blessings shall come upon you and shall overtake you if you will obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the country, blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beast and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. And in case you don't get it, he's saying, I'm going to make you rich. And so then if that's not clear enough, he says, the Lord will command the blessings the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord is giving you. And then he says, and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. That's the rich young ruler. He has kept the commandments. He is rich. He he is rich because God has blessed him. That's the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus comes along and says, sell it all. And in his mind, not only did it grieve him because he's have to give it all up, but it shocked him because he is living proof of Deuteronomy 28. And that's why these disciples are going, because they've gone the next step and said, well, blessing is because God's pleased with you. And that means that you are, in fact, living rightly before God. You are on the way to being saved. And so if that man with all of his blessings, who's keeping the commandments, is not saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus goes, exactly. What's impossible with men is possible with God. But he is, it is so radically different, even his disciples don't get. This is why it is so contrary to Deuteronomy 28 and the covenant that God made with Israel when Jesus starts out his constitution for the new kingdom by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Deuteronomy 28 says, I'll make you rich. Matthew 5 says, you can't even enter the kingdom unless you're poor in spirit. This is radically different stuff. Again, he's not talking about poverty in terms of material possessions. He's speaking about a brokenness, a bankruptcy of spirit. Not that we are down on ourselves, not that we feel that, that, that we are worthless, But rather, that we understand we have nothing to contribute. There is no righteousness of our own. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. We come to Him with empty hands, beggar poor, and simply say, God save me because I cannot save myself. That's what He's looking for in poverty of spirit. That's how we enter into His kingdom. And from that, all these other things will flow. Not only will we be poor in spirit, but we will mourn, we will be gentle. We will, be, we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. We will be merciful. We will be pure in heart. We will be peacemakers wanting to see men and women reconciled to God, and we will be persecuted. See, not in Deuteronomy 28. You will have victory over your enemies. I will give you peace with your enemies. But in here in the Sermon on the Mount, again, radically different, you're going to be persecuted if you are members of my kingdom. But that's why verse 11, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. I just want to say just a brief word about reward. It's often a very um, misunderstood topic. And we see here again, this is the first paragraph in three chapters dealing with the constitution of the kingdom of God, and reward is mentioned. In the last paragraph of Scripture, in Revelation 22, reward is mentioned again, where Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and I have my reward with me, rewarding to every man according to what he has done. And so the constitution begins with reward, and the New Testament ends with reward. It's a very significant subject. I really appreciated the passage that um, Jack was looking at in the Sunday school class this morning, where it talks about sancti- sanctification is by the Spirit as we have a- and, and faith, as, as the Spirit of God sanctifies us and faith is involved in that process. Too many Christians think that sanctification is by works, that we're saved by faith and we are sanctified by works. While Jack was talking, I just flipped through the concordance, minor little bitty concordance in the back of my Bible and looked up sanctifies, and every reference that I could find is in, it says it is God who sanctifies. I couldn't find a single reference in the brief concordance I have in the back of my Bible that says that we are sanctified by works. God sanctifies. Jesus Christ is our sanctification. He has become to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Well, how do rewards fit in? If you don't remember, I won't look, take the time to look at it, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that every man is building upon the foundation, and the foundation is Jesus Christ. As soon as you place your faith in Christ, a foundation is laid, and that is Christ himself. And we spend the rest of our lives building on that foundation. And we are building either with wood, hay, and stubble, or we are building with, with gold, silver, and precious stones. What distinguishes them? Faith, that's all, faith. Anything I do in dependence upon Jesus Christ is reckoned as gold, silver, and precious stones. Anything I do from my own strength, from my own humanity, is reckoned as wood, hay, and stubble. This is the sole distinction between Isaac and Ishmael. Abraham fathered both of those children. Isaac and Ishmael, right? One of them was viewed as a product of the flesh and the other was viewed as the work of God. And the only distinction was faith. In one he was trusting God and the other he was not. That is the sole distinction between wood, hay, and stubble and gold, silver, and precious stones. Is my heart one of a disposition of dependence and humility and drawing from Jesus in all that I do, or am I trying to do my best for Jesus and hoping it will be rewarded? Well, I've got good news for you. Your reward, your your good effort will never be enough, and that is good news. The sooner we come to that realization, the better, because then we're cast back onto Jesus Christ, and we trust in him in the same way that we were saved. Colossians 2 says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There is not one way to be saved and another way to be sanctified. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We are sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the only thing that will ever be rewarded is what God did through us. And this is why I like to say, this is why nobody's going to boast in their reward. Because to be be precise, we are being rewarded for what we simply allow Jesus to do through us. So how can I boast and what Christ did. See, this is why Paul says, the only thing I he says, I'm going to boast, I can only boast about what Jesus did, but I can't take credit for what Jesus did. See? So we're not going to be standing around, you know, popping our suspenders, going, look how much stuff I got. Sorry, you didn't get more. You should have been more like me. That's <laughs> not going to happen in heaven. We're going to say, everything that I've been given is simply because I trusted in Jesus. This doesn't make sense then I'm being rewarded for what Christ did. That's why there's not going to be any boasting. That's why we can't take pride in it, because Christ did it. But make no mistake, when we come into his kingdom, being poor in spirit, and we live in the same disposition of saying, Jesus, I need you, you go, what about that could be upsetting to anybody? Well, it makes us look radically different from this world that's saying you need to make something of your life. You need to go out and get a hold of this life and do something. You need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You need to accomplish things, and you need to go out and be recognized. And I'm not saying we live a passive life of just sitting on our hands, nothing of the sort, but I am saying the motivation of your life ceases to be about you because you recognize that you have nothing in yourself that you could contribute to your own salvation. We come to him poor in spirit, and that makes us radically different from this world, and it gets us persecuted, pure and simple, just for being different. It's like those days in junior high that we all hate so much and never even want to think about, never want to go back to, but we make our, all of our kids endure it. Unless you homeschool them. And then they just do the same to each other. Um, <laughs> I remember showing up in element, in, in junior high, and going, Why am I being persecuted? And I didn't think of it persecuted, just pure old abuse. Why am I being abused? And it was just for being little. And I go, Why is that a bad thing? I was cute when I was in elementary school. A year later, you know, I'm a reject. And I'm going, I didn't ask for this. I didn't do anything. I'm just little. Well, it wasn't good to be little in junior high. And it's a lot like being a Christian. You go, all I did was receive Jesus. Why does that make me a bad person? But to this world, everything about Christ in his kingdom is contradictory to this world. And the world hates what it sees. And so we can spend our lives just scratching our head and going, why? But it is to be expected. It's going to happen. There is soft persecution where we're just overlooked as Christians. We are not given the same favor that other people are given. We're not given the same care or respect that other people are given. And there's the hard persecution where we are actually attacked. Right now, we're going through more of the soft persecution and it's probably gonna get worse, but it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said this is the natural outcome of simply being poor in spirit and coming into his kingdom. It's going to happen, happens to us all. Rejoice and be glad because this isn't, this kingdom on earth is not our kingdom. Our reward is in heaven because it's the kingdom of heaven that we now participate in. And our reward will be great. They persecuted the prophets. You remember, and Jesus is just an observation that somebody else made here when I was reading. I thought, that's great. In Jesus making this connection, they persecuted the prophets, so they will persecute you. They persecuted the prophets because of their relationship with God. So this is a not-so-subtle claim that Jesus is making to be God. If they persecuted the prophets because of their relationship with God, they will persecute you because of your relationship with me, Jesus' is God. And that leads him into saying, you are the salt of the earth, verse 13, and you are the light of the world, verse 14. You are. Not you will be, not you ought to be. You are. This happens, this change in character, this change in identity takes place the moment we place our faith in Christ. It's not what we do, it's what God has done. I looked at the students a few weeks ago um, at Acts 1-8, where it says that Jesus says that, wait until the Holy Spirit comes and when he comes, you shall become, you shall be my witnesses. Doesn't say you will become witnesses when you witness. It says you will become witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes to, to, comes upon you. And now Jesus is making the same kind of statement. The moment that you place your faith in Christ, at that moment before you do a single thing, your identity changes. You become salt and light, like it or not. So you are. You're now different. We all want to encourage one another, and we should. Scripture tells us encourage one another. and we, And I think... We, we use things like, we say, oh, you're, you're wonderful. We'll say, you're so beautiful, you're so smart, you're, you're just a great person to be around, I feel so encouraged when I'm with you. Those are all great things to say. When was the last time we said to somebody who was just feeling maybe a little down in their faith, having a bad day, you're salt, you're light. And we come up, and there's nothing wrong with those other things. You're wonderful, but really, does it say that in the Bible? The Bible says, I'm a wretch, apart from the grace of God. What the Bible says is, I'm salt, and I'm light. And apparently, Christians need to hear that. Christians need to be reminded of who they are. Maybe that's what we ought to tell our kids when they're being persecuted, when things are difficult for them. We need to remind them how they don't fit into this world. And they won't fit into this world because they're salt and they're light. And this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. If we're fitting into this world, then we're being worldly. Jesus says that we are to be in the world but not of the world. He he has made us different from the world. He did this. The U in these verses is emphatic. Salt is, an, is I'm not a chemist here, don't make any um, pretense to be, so I'm sp- speaking way over my head with this. Every time I speak of, think of chemistry, even I think of that class I had, one class of chemistry in high school, just about killed me. Um, <laughs> I never did know what a mole was. I thought they're little animals that burrow under the ground, but, you know, apparently understanding what mole is is essential to being good at chemistry, and that's why I was never good at chemistry. I called up my best friend, who was just brilliant, and, and um, anyway. I called him up, and he was studying with another kid that was just brilliant, and I begged him please let me sit in on your study group. I won't even ask any questions, because I don't know any questions to ask. I just want to listen to you guys study. And they, they had mercy on me. And they allowed me to sit in with them. My and my grades began to go up. And that was amazing. And this teacher, he was, I guess he just didn't understand how stupid I really was, because he chose the three of us to actually go to a chemistry symposium at the local university with all the best chemistry students in the city. And I'm just going, this is the biggest joke of my life. I don't even know how to spell chemistry. And I'm, you know. but I mean, but my, it was just because of those I was just listening to those guys. And, I, and I, so osmosis, I, this one part of chemistry, I was, I was getting it by osmosis <laughs> with these guys. But we had a student one time who came to his hill. who wasn't a chemical engineer, but he was working toward it. And he wrote a paper for me on salt and explained to me that salt is a very stable compound, sodium chloride. Actually, <laughs> yeah, I knew that. And, um, and that it just doesn't break down easily, doesn't change easily, which is the whole point. There has been a substantial change of identity here. Salt is, is also essential. Did you know you cannot live Without salt. You can take too much salt and die, but if you had no salt in your body, you would also die. Um, my niece, a couple of years ago now, she had a severe head injury riding her, um, she was mountain biking and, and um, had a helmet on, but she nonetheless had a severe head injury, and her body began expelling all her salt. And it, the brain was just telling her she had too much salt, and she was just expelling all of her salt. The, the, the um, doctor that was there said he'd only seen it a, a couple other times in his whole career, and so they were having just to load her up with massive amounts of salt, enough to kill any other person. But the body was, was just shedding it all as quick as they put it in because the brain was telling her that she had too much. We were thankful that she lived through that. She was, it was pretty touch and go. We need salt, it's absolutely essential. If you control salt production, you can control people's lives. This is why the British government, when they were in charge of India, over, when they ruled over India, one of the things they did was they took control of all the salt production. And so Gandhi, when he came along and decided they needed to overthrow the British government, he locked in on salt production. If we can produce our own salt, then we can break their grip. And so they started leaching salt out of seawater so that they could have their own salt because all the mines were being controlled by the British government. And that, plus other things, obviously, resulted in the British government um, um, lo- losing control, um, releasing control over to the Indian people. Salt is absolutely necessary to our well-being. How was it used in this day? It was used to season foods, it was, um, but it was more than that. And yeah, there was no refrigeration, and one of the main purposes of salt was just to rub meat so that fish, other ty- kinds of meat, I don't really consider fish and meat. But anyway, it, it is to, to rub down meat so that it wouldn't rot um, more quickly than it would normally under the, under the temperatures. And so it was a preservative. So it was an indispensable necessity of life, and that's what we are. Now, the world doesn't understand this. So why does Jesus say this right after being persecuted? Because we're likely to think, what did I buy into? Do I really want this? And we can begin to think that we are awful people because the world's telling us we're awful people. And so Jesus has to say, you know, you're not awful people, you're different people. And what you are, the kind of difference that you are is actually indispensable. It is vital to the life of the society that you're living in. Take away this presence of salt and the society is going to get even worse. Think of rapture. Can you imagine what this world's going to be like when all the Christians are taken out in a moment of time? It's not gonna be a better place. It's gonna be infinitely worse because this presence of Christians is a restraining presence. It is a presence that not only is essential for life, but it is a presence which stops the decay. It slows down the putrefaction that's taking place. So salt is for preservation. And this world is literally preserved by the presence of Christians. That's why I I feel very strongly that God will not begin his judgment on this planet until the church is taken out of the way. Because it is this church that is God is using through the Holy Spirit to restrain or to preserve the world, to restrain the world from its evil and to preserve the world from the destruction that it's heading toward. So he must take out the salt before that judgment can begin. So Christians are serving as God's restraint upon the putrefaction process. You can't make salt becomes something else. It is a stable compound. All we can do is cause it to lose its saltiness. That's not difficult to do. And it principally happens as salt is mixed with other compounds or other elements, dirt, water, whatever, it causes salt to lose its saltiness. And it would seem that what Jesus is saying is that if we lose our distinctiveness, our saltiness, then what's the purpose? It's good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Be very careful with statements like this. This is not a statement that a person loses their salvation. I think this is why he's choosing the metaphor salt, because even when the salt loses its saltiness, its taste, it's still salt. It is a very stable compound. So if the metaphor were loss of salvation, he should have chosen something else that's going to change. But salt is still salt, even if it loses its its tastiness, its, its, its saltiness. It becomes tasteless, but it's still salt. And we are still Christians if we lose our influence in society. But the way that we would lose our influence is by becoming like the world. Why would we do that? Because we don't like being persecuted. We don't like the difficulty that comes with being different. Who does? He doesn't say like it. That would be psychosis of some kind. That would be mental illness of some kind. He doesn't say like it. He says rejoice in it and be glad. Not the same thing. We are different, and that difference is going to bring persecution. But the world needs it. Patsy's a nurse; she's a good nurse, and she takes good care of me when I need it. It doesn't mean I like it. <laughs> she wants to rub those wounds, you know, when there's little you get a scrape and there's some dirt or something in there. I can see her eyes start to twinkle and she goes, this is my job. You know, rub, 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 rub. (laughs) Does he he really need to? That's what nurses do. I'm convinced that nurses do not have the gift of mercy. But that makes them... (laughs) But they wouldn't be good nurses if they had the gift of mercy. Most of our Bible school students don't have the gift of mercy either. There's a video that Michael made of me riding some hoverboard. (laughs) And... I crash into a wall, and, the, and then I, I go over a little threshold, and I, and I fly and, and almost die, and everybody watches it. They just laugh, and I go, this is, this, this is actually a spiritual gift test. It <laughs> proves that you do not have the gift of mercy. That was a tangent. Man alive. <laughs> so we are different. Difference is good. The world needs us. In so many different respects, the world needs us, and all you gotta do to be different is just stay close to Jesus. But there are times being different means you're not gonna say something when everybody else is saying something, right? Sometimes the difference is I just need to keep my mouth closed and not be the one who's complaining, not being the one who's shouting. Other times, the difference means I need to be the one who does say something. I need to be the one who's speaking up. Nobody else is. need to go to those school board meetings. need to register that this isn't right, which means that we go on record. I mean, this is how it works. Totalitarian states always take note of those who speak up so they can silence them. And as we become more totalitarian, the more we just say speak, the more we're going to be taken note of for the purpose of being silent. But we are salt, and we do not serve the world by ceasing to be what we are. Then he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So then he talks, why would anybody strike a light, Only to cover it, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure. Why would you do that? But you put it on the lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Salt is primarily negative. Stops the putrefaction, stops the decay, It gives preservation whereas light is more of a positive influence. You can't, light stimulates life, light stimulates growth, it exposes, yes, it brings what is hidden out into the open, yes, but you aren't going to have good growth and good health apart from light. During this whole COVID thing, we're learning that one of the problems has been not enough vitamin D. And the easiest way to get vitamin D is to go out in the light, the sunlight, and your body will produce it. Your body needs light. We had a guest speaker that told us recently about, in our staff meeting in his devotion, about how big the vegetables get up in Alaska. And so I Googled it, well, massive or giant Alaskan vegetables. And all these pictures, I mean, lettuce that are just massive. You can't even get your arms around some of these heads of lettuce and things, and, and you're just going... Well, it's because of the light. Because during the short growing season, as short as it is, there's light for 20 hours a day. And these vegetables just grow like crazy. I remember the first time we went up to northern Canada, just, which is like the North Pole, um, Alberta, Beaver Lodge up there, and, and, and our, our son's in-laws were saying, yeah, we plant this garden right out in front of the house. And certain of the vegetables, she, the, 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 our son-in-law's, Mother-in-law, our son's mother-in-law was telling us "Is you can sit on the porch and watch the plants grow. We're going, no. She goes, I'm telling you, you can sit here and watch them grow because they're growing so fast because light does that. So in this too, the world needs light. But the world is dark, and the darkness, what? Hates the light, John chapter 1. Jesus came into the world. He's the light of the world, and the world hated the darkness. So even though the world needs the light, it also hates the light because it exposes the world. It condemns the world. And the world doesn't like it. Once again, this is not because I chose to be light. It's not because I chose to be salt. It's because these things are true of Jesus. And when we place our faith in Him, what is true of Him becomes true of us. Jesus is the light of the world. We are the light of the world. doesn't say should be. doesn't say strive to be. says you are the light of the world. Of the world. Now, just as the Bible doesn't say strive for unity, it doesn't say make yourself one. The Bible says we are united, maintain the unity. You are light, then keep being light. Well, how do I keep being light? Well, one way, this is from Philippians chapter 2, It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you will appear as lights in the world. By just doing things without grumbling or disputing, and I will look like a light in the world. Isn't that so true? We know that. Just have a good attitude. When everybody around you has a bad attitude, and if you will just have a good attitude, when everybody around you is complaining and you will be thankful, you will stand out as lights in the world. Nobody else can change your attitude. I used to say to one of my boys, go in the room, close the door, and do not come out until your attitude's changed. You might be shaving by that time, (laughs) Maybe you'll be on Social Security, but you will not come out until your attitude's changed. And typically, it didn't take very long. Sometimes it took longer. But he knew and I knew I couldn't change his attitude. That was something between him and God. And he learned to go to God and say, God, there needs to be an attitude adjustment. And the God who made you light is more than able to keep you being light. What is grumbling and complaining? It's not giving thanks. What is thanks? It is faith. Major Ian Thomas used to say the language of faith is thanksgiving. So when we're living grumbling and complaining, guess what? We're not living in faith. Because faith says thank you. That's how we got saved. Jesus, thank you for dying for me, giving your life for me. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life that you offer And we live in the same way. Thank you, Jesus. The Bible doesn't say you are fire and brimstone. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say you are sugar. The Bible says we are salt and we are light. There is a fundamental difference between Christians and non-Christians. One person said, we serve neither God nor ourselves nor the world by attempting to obliterate or even minimize the difference. I like that quote. We serve neither God nor ourselves. We do not help ourselves by trying to be something other than what we are. Nor do we serve the world by attempting to obliterate or even minimize the difference. The Sermon on the Mount is built upon the assumption that Christians are different and it issues the call to live out that difference. The greatest tragedy of the church is its tendency to conform to culture rather than providing a Christian counterculture. And we do that by simply being what we are, salt and light. The difference between us and the world is one of nature, not so much behavior. The behavior flows from the nature. The difference implies responsibility to the world. We must accept the responsibility which this distinction brings upon us. We must be what we are. Being is by faith as we have first become. And good works will be natural because we live from Christ. So the Christian responsibility in this passage is twofold. Prevent decay and illuminate darkness. We are called to stop the spread of evil and to promote the spread of life. This means being courageous and outspoken in condemning evil. Condemnation is negative, well, so is salt. Standards slip for lack of protest. As one writer said, our ambition is not to be the honeypot of the world in an attempt to sweeten and sugar the bitterness of life with an all too easy conception of a loving God. But our ambition is to simply be true to Jesus. You know, this is this. You don't have to get on a soapbox and start screaming and yelling. It's just in the simple things, simple things, when some other person is being persecuted, beaten down, for just being good. You know, we know we teach our kids this, and you know, bullying is wrong. You see it, do something about it. We all heard the story of what happened to the young woman on a on a, a train last week. And people, nobody called 911, nobody intervened. They just all got out their phones and videotaped. Awful. That's not being salt. Salt speaks up when it's time to speak up. Being salt and light means giving bold affirmation of what is good and decent. Sometimes the most simple things are the most powerful things. Like just moms and dads loving each other. Husband, wife loving each other, loving their kids. The family unit, God meant to be salt and light. And one of the best ways that we can be salt and light as Christians is to maintain the family unit and to recognize that when you're tempted to pull apart, then you're being tempted To not live out the salt and light that God has made you to be. It means that fallen man needs more than barricades, he needs more than salt. He also needs light, which speaks of regeneration, to be other than what he is. The light that people see is our good works, not ourselves but they see the good works, and the end goal that God has from that is that they would glorify God. They would recognize that this difference can only come because of God. There is nothing in this passage, in these few verses, that teaches us how to be salt and light. We become salt and light by believing on Jesus, and we will be salt and light as we continue to walk with Him. The way to be blessed is by coming to Jesus poor in spirit. The way the world is served is by being what we have become as we come to Jesus. We have become salt and light. And this is also the way that God is glorified. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So I just want to encourage you... um, with this simple reminder. You are wonderful. You are loved. But don't forget, you are salt and you are light. And those simple truths mean we are not of this world. And even though we are exactly what the world needs, the world is not going to appreciate it. And that can be very, very discouraging. I get it. We don't have to like it, but we need to be be reminded that this earth and this earth's kingdom is not the kingdom of heaven. And we're looking to a new kingdom, a kingdom that is yet to come. And we, in that kingdom, will have great reward as we rejoice and are glad in the cost that comes from simply being what we are, salt and light. We all need real wisdom, um, particularly with COVID and now the mandates that are um, coming down the pike. um, Very, very difficult time. And I would just say to us, just as a word of caution, speaking pastorally here, I know that there are several individuals in this church who are having to face what to do, whether to get the shot or not. And some have made the decision they will not get the shot. And others, um, I'm, I'm speaking plural because I'm assuming more than one or two. I don't know for sure. But I know others have decided they will get the shot. Others have not decided yet because they still have some time to pray and think about it. When I talk about being salt and light, we're talking principally about character through identification with Jesus Christ. When it comes to decisions about whether to get the salt, get the salt, get the shot or not, um, I can't tell anybody what they should do. I'm not sure what I would do. I'm not facing it. I fully respect those who are saying, cannot do it, cannot remain true to my convictions before the Lord, and get the shot. And I know others who are saying, I don't want to. I believe everything about it's wrong. But I feel I I need to do this. Both are seeking God. And the scripture speaks to that kind of thing and says, there's not necessarily a clear right and wrong on things like this. So don't judge others and say, well, you're not being sought. You just need to take the shot and be the salt that you've been made to be. I, I I can't put that on anybody. I understand. Fully understand and support those who are on both sides of this. They won't get it. I understand. And there will be a cost for not getting it. We need to pray for the consequences that those individuals will face. And others will say I don't want to get it. Don't believe it's right but I believe I need to get it. It's the right thing to do for taking care of my family. Difficult place. I get it. Support it both ways. So I wasn't planning on bringing that in at the conclusion of this message, but I I feel that we need to, when we talk about salt and light, make sure we're talking about Jesus. The distinctiveness is Christ. He and his life is what he wants to be seen. Whether or not we get a shot is um, don't make that about Jesus. I hope I'm, I'm not maybe, maybe being as clear as I want to be, but don't over-spiritualize that, especially when, when what somebody else is deciding. They're having to seek God. They're having to come to him for wisdom. And the Lord, because it's not in necessarily a... In their minds, a biblical issue, they may come to a different conclusion than we do. It's a hard thing. When it comes to lying, we know what Scripture says. When it comes to immorality, we know what Scripture says. It's tough. I've so told the story before, I never had the chance to talk to my grandfather about it. My dad told me the story during the Great Depression. He was uh, an insurance salesman. Not a great position to have selling insurance during the Great Depression. Most people are not going to spend money on insurance. His company had done something unethical, and the higher-ups came to him, and they said, we want to blame you. We want you to take the hit for what we did. And if you'll take the hit for it, if you will take the blame, um, you'll keep your job. And if you don't take the blame, you will lose your job. And my grandfather quit during the Depression. Very, very difficult decision to make. But he felt like it came down to a thing of lying. And he said, I can't lie and say I'm at fault for something I didn't do. Cannot do that. So as hard as the decision it was, it was a very clear decision. And it cost him. That's being salt. That's being light. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Salt that's lost its taste is good for nothing other than to be trampled. May God work in us that we would remain the salt and light that we've become. I'll pray. Lord, we are but sheep. No one knows that better than you. On this whole thing, God, of the mandates which we've been living under, not nearly as greatly as other places, other people, but nonetheless we've had them and more are coming. It's very, very difficult. Jesus, we need your wisdom. Your word says that you are the wisdom of God, and you have become wisdom to us. Your word says that if we ask for wisdom, that you promise to supply it. And I pray that every man and woman in this body, as they're having to face, Lord, these mandates and what to do, that they would truly have your wisdom, your grace, God, for living in this fallen world at this time. Thank you that you are sufficient for the difference and the consequences of it that you have brought about as we've simply placed our faith in Jesus. We didn't make ourselves salt. We didn't make ourselves light. And so, God, in things like this, when we suffer the consequences for being what you have made us to be, I can only think that you will be responsible to manage the consequences. And so we thank you for that, that what is of your doing, you'll take care of. And there is fallout, God, as this passage is saying, both positive and negative, from being different from the world. And God, I do thank you that you are sufficient and adequate for that fallout. In Jesus' name, amen.